us to come forward and we will turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 1, please give your attention to God's holy word. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise, and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be. Or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me? Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying, ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother, Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, Envies, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. 
and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. This chapter continues the argument uh, we heard started uh, earlier today in chapter 11, where Paul perceives himself as forced, necessitated, to commend himself to the Corinthian church as a result of their baseless charges against him. And in this chapter, we'll see, uh, basically broken down into four, uh, certain favors God provided for him in verse 1 through 4, the means by which God kept him from swelling up in pride, because of them in verse 5 through 10, how the Corinthian church should have defended the apostle in verses 11 through 13, and what the apostle's thoughts and intentions were concerning the Corinthian church for the remainder of the chapter. So we turn our attention to verses 1 through 4, describing those special favors God provided the apostle. He says in verse 1, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. In the first part of the verse, he says it is not expedient to glory or to boast. The idea behind the word here, expedient, is usefulness or profitability, whether a certain action or activity is conducive to improve something. To this effect, you may remember Paul's words uh, in the first letter to the Corinthians when he should say, all things are lawful unto me, right? But not all things are expedient. All things lawful are not useful or profitable to edification in a given circumstance. Why then is it not profitable for Paul to glory according to his own words? The answer, because it serves in no way to profit him. He doesn't need an increase in his self-esteem or a reminder that he's an apostle or that he's the real deal. As many of you know, glorying or boasting over oneself or self-advertising is often conducive and tends towards fleshly, right, carnal, prideful thoughts and actions. But why then does the Apostle Paul glory and commend himself? He does so, as we see, not for his own sake, but for the Corinthian church's sake, that they might advance and not be led astray by false apostles to their own hurt by falling out with the Apostle Paul and his apostolic ministry. His commending of himself was to profit the Corinthian church because they had become so enamored with showiness and self-advertising of imposters. These wannabe apostles, we might call them, were ready to speak highly of themselves, of their supposed great experiences, even if untrue. And yet our apostle here would be so reluctant to even enumerate his credentials and supernatural experiences. We don't observe the apostle Paul strutting about commanding where he may, but rather we see that he seeks those under him to be equally persuaded towards their duty towards what is truly good for them. But given their fascination for charlatans, for them it was necessary that they might behold the credentials of a real apostle, even if briefly. It is not expedient or profitable for me, doubtless, to glory in myself, Paul should say, but I will proceed to glory in visions and revelations of the Lord. In verse 2 he says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, such a one caught up to the third heaven, how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. We might realize Paul here is speaking of himself and changes from the use of the first person right to the third person. 
Doing so, he shows modesty and humility, not desiring to show off his own experiences as though he is tooting his own horn, as we like to say. But he shares a brief reference to an experience he had. He was in Christ, that is a Christian. He was caught up to the third heaven, into paradise. He was taken to what we commonly call heaven. In scripture usage, as well as ancient cosmology, heaven had three different references, as you may know. The first heaven, where the birds fly, right? Then the second heaven, you had where the stars, sun, and moon reside. And then the third heaven was in relation to where God's throne is, the angels, and the departed saints. But note, heaven here is called paradise, implying a place of supreme experiential delight to the people of God. And yet, he doesn't divulge farther. Right? What perhaps would spark desire and interest in some to know more among the Corinthians? Give us specifics, Paul. Right? How did you get there? He says, whether in body or out of body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. He's not concerned with particular speculations not made clear to him, and therefore not conducive to edification. Whether all this occurred while in my body or my soul alone was taken up to some other place, I don't know. God knows, and that is all that is sufficient for me to know. Almost as if he was to say. He says he heard unspeakable words. He heard heavenly speech, unimaginable. Paul, Paul, what what did you hear? I heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. The Corinthian church, we might say, was enamored with persons of lofty experience and great showy charismatic gifts and revelations. And it is here Paul would say these words heard in such a high revelation were unlawful for a man to utter. Unlawful for him to disclose. He had no commission from God to share what he heard. Notice Paul's laser sharp focus. He's not let off his train of thoughts as maybe you know, we often are ourselves. As though to get caught up and lost in what he recalls having experienced. The delight of paradise revealed to him. No, his aim is singular. His aim is to make known what was given to him for edification. Paul well understood that both what he, that what we take in and what we put out, right, it must be that which is for edification, that which builds up truth and goodness in one another. Our pursuits of knowledge as well as communication ought to avoid satisfying vain curiosity, right, tickling those itchy ears. Rather, like the apostle, we should be focused and aimed at that which tends to build up in faith and good works. So in verse 5, he says, Of such a one I will glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Notice the contrast now from verse 5 forward. In verse 1 through 4, he will keep sealed to his readers that unfathomable glorious speech such a one heard in heaven. Words not lawful for a man to utter here and now, but here, now, he's going to disclose and make known heavenly speech he heard while in infirmity. Heavenly words which have been the comfort of many Christians over all the world ever since it was written, found in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here Paul begins to show what means God provided that he should not grow prideful or think too much of himself for those revelations and favors which God had granted him. The Lord provided that he should 
be given a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. A thorn in the flesh. The idea, right, is something sharp, right? It penetrates the skin. It's splinter-like. It stings. It's constant irritation, discomfort. The messenger of Satan to buffet me. This thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, it was the messenger of Satan. It came to strike him. In what way was it the messenger of Satan? We might say that it was the messenger of Satan in that it was the intention of evil men or even Satan to discourage, to shut up, to cause Paul to draw back. In like manner, we hear in the book of Job, right, how Satan intended Job's ruin and falling away from integrity by the calamities that should be brought upon him, his possessions, and his, all his relations. But, right, Satan intended one thing. The Lord had a higher intent and purpose in them, even as he did here. The Lord had a higher purpose in this uncomfortable thorn in Paul, that he should be kept from exalting above measure, as Paul says, in the special favors and commission God had given him. A commission to bear the name of Christ before Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, as it says in Acts 9, in which he would suffer many great things for the Lord's sake. What does he do then with this thorn in the flesh? Does he start speaking to the devil, arguing with him? No, not quite, right? Or perhaps, maybe if he had it available to him then, he might get on social media, right, and post all about it. <laughs> No, that doesn't seem quite in line with what we see of the Apostle Paul. Rather, he applies himself to the Lord that he might provide relief. Paul well understood who governed over his affliction. And so he applies himself there to the throne of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and governor of all things. Brothers and sisters, let us also follow in suit. Is there something that troubles you? Take it to the Lord first. Begin with him in prayer. Paul then seeks the Lord to provide relief. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, one who had received the abundance of the revelations, besought the Lord three times that it might depart from him, that he might have complete deliverance. Perhaps the Corinthian conception of the apostles, according to the false apostles, they entertained might have suggested, surely apostles of all people, right? They would be heard by the Lord and receive swift deliverance from whatever ails them. But there's not an answer to Paul's pleading at the first request, not even second request, but the third request the Lord speaks to him. Congregation, if the apostle Paul must plead with the Lord more than once, Concerning a matter, should we then grow discouraged that we have not observed this answer to some of our own good and lawful prayers for the first time? Be assured, as the scripture says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He is not deaf to your crying and pleading. He hears and is not answering, as one has said, is an answer of sorts, right? Not to send you away, but to draw you out, right, for his glory, and for your good. And so the Lord speaks to Paul after the third time in verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. His grace was sufficient for Paul. His grace, that is his favors and gifts, 
to Paul. His grace, his favors, and gifts to the apostle were adequate and competent to overcome all difficulties the apostle faced, to fulfill the office given him. In the words of one commentator, as though God should say, you seek therefore a thing, right? Immediate relief from this thorn, which is not only not needed, but you seek a thing which also obscures the glory of my power. Why? For my power, right, or strength is made perfect in weakness. God would have Paul to know the power of God in weakness, infirmity. Might, might think, why? Isn't my weakness and infirmity an obstacle to the Lord's work? No, on the contrary, right? The scriptures show human strength, skill, and ingenuity is often an obstacle to the Lord's prescriptive will. You may recall when King Hezekiah of old was preparing his men with the thought of facing the army of Assyria, led by Sennacherib, he told them, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with them. For there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. In the Lord's eyes, he would have it that his power and strength be made known and shown when our weakness is readily apparent. Notice what the Lord said to Paul. For my strength is made perfect. That is, is brought to greater manifestation in weakness, in your weakness. Not your strength, but my strength. Not your power, but my power is made perfect. It is made apparent and readily manifest in and amidst your infirmity. That is true. The Apostle Paul concludes in verse 9, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, For when I am weak, then am I strong. As though Paul should say, I will not glory then in the abundance of revelations made known unto me, but contrarily in the abundance of infirmities and afflictions, insofar as they are the occasions by which the strength and power of Christ and God may abide with and about me. The occasions by which I am made to sense the smallness of my own strength and power. The occasions by which I am farther drawn out of myself to seek power and strength in the Lord, the occasions by which He, Christ Jesus, is most ready to fill and increase our spiritual strength when we are most cognizant and aware of our lack. Here, there is an implicit rebuke to the philosophy of ministry, right, of those false apostles in the Corinthian church who thought the power and strength of Christ and God was in outward show, right, worldly ideas of power and Lord-like demonstration. But these, in truth, were carnal ideas, from below, not from God. Our Lord taught in Matthew 20 that his officers should be ministers, yes, even servants, following the example of Christ, who came not to be ministered unto, right, but to minister and give his life for a ransom for many. In verse 11 of our chapter, Paul moves to reprove the Corinthian church for necessitating such an exercise of boasting when they themselves were well aware and knowledgeable of Paul's qualifications and the extraordinary signs or miracles by which his ministry was verified unto them to be apostolic. Note the duty of the Corinthian church owed the Apostle Paul as their superior. 
They ought to have defended and maintained Paul. Defend and maintain his person and authority. And not let those right false apostles, those imposters among them who sought to bring down Paul's reputation in order to make room for themselves, only to the church's harm, they were to maintain and defend his integrity, not only as though he was an apostle out there somewhere in, in the, you know, somewhere out on the landscape, but one who had been with them, had dwelt with them, had served them, had founded them, taught them. Additionally, in verse 12, observe how the apostolic office was attended with apostolic seals. These seals were particularly provided for by God to farther validate, confirm, and strengthen the initial preaching and teaching of the apostles, which should lay the foundation for the church for ages to come. Consider the first of these seals, however, right, which precedes the signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. He says, in patience, right, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, right, patience in bearing all difficulties in an upright and commendable fashion and not being crushed by them. What patience, we might ask, did Paul lack in comparison with the charlatans, the pretenders who sought to put a blot on his reputation? Likewise, with the signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. What signs, wonders, and mighty deeds did Paul lack to perform in comparison with the false apostles who turned the church away from him? What then did I deprive you of, Paul should say in verse 13? Was it that I did not burden you with my expenses? Oh, I'm surprised. Sorry, spare me, forgive me this wrong. Paul here speaks tongue-in-cheek, right, in irony. They should have thanked the Apostle Paul for his kindness, for all he had labored among them. And even then, not requiring of them to support him while with them, but no, they would make it a fault, right? Behold, Paul says in verse 14, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. Why, Paul? Why won't you be burdensome to us? Because I, Paul, would have you know that I seek you, not your money. I seek your edification and growth, not what I can get from you. Even as a good, faithful parent, right? He gives the illustration of a good, faithful parent. They lay up for their children out of that natural affection, desiring their well-being, right? Though it be at great cost to them and never be to repaid again. I will very gladly spend, he says in verse 19, and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Oh, Paul, you might imagine this objection. Don't give us that, right? You may have not taken money from us yourself. No, you were sly, right? You sent others to collect money for yourself. To which Paul responds in the negative. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? We speak before God in Christ, doing all things, dearly beloved, for your edification, for your edifying. Consider from the Apostle's speech how good it is when ministers of the gospel and all the officers in the church work in unity, walking in the same spirit, in the same steps, speaking before God in Christ, doing all things towards the edification of the church, Christ's body. His people. A wedge cannot be inserted between them, right, so as to turn them against one another. They see eye to eye, right, as Isaiah 52 says. Oh, that the Lord would grant more of this in our own day for the good of His people and God's glory 
And that is a worthy item to pray for. The chapter ends with a warning from Paul, right? He feared that he may have to exercise his apostolic authority in censuring and disciplining offenders when he visits for matters they have not repented over and yet to correct. He fears he will come and find, in verse 20, debates, that is, contentions among them, envies or jealousy, wraths, lots of passion, right? Warmth, heat, fierce anger, strifes, backbitings or evil speaking, whisperings, gossip and secret slanders behind closed doors, swellings, that is, of self-importance and pride, tumults or disturbances and confusion, To have to discipline the Corinthian church upon his visitation would probably pain him just as much as they would be pained, if not more. It would be a humbling of him, causing him grief. Paul attempts through words to stir them up, right? To perform the works that are necessary to amend matters among themselves before he should come. And may these words stir stir us up as well, according to our various stations, to amend are ways where we find ourselves walking amiss, disaffected, at variance, strain, even if slowly, with the gospel ministry of our Lord. And that concludes our time in chapter 12 of Second Corinthians.